Thank you, everybody. Well, my dear brother John, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Yeah, I uh, made some I made some cutting comments as I was introducing you there. Uh, we have a slide. I'm going Notice. to ask our our media team to put that slide back up, if we could. Uh, I I, I want to ask you just for a minute, what exactly is is this? Um, <laughs> I'm going to need to flip my screen to see the, the feed that you're, you're, oh, you're showing. Okay, well, I, I've got you on the red carpet here. I've got you in some happening tennis shoes. I, right. I just would, would you share with the people uh, how God blessed you with a role in a movie uh, that you've spent the last couple of years on? You, you went to a wonderful premiere. Uh, and it's just good to see you dressed like that, actually. I've, through the years, I've just never seen you in anything but a black, black suit and tie and all of that. And it, it's good to see you like that, bro. You, you from, look, ma from mafia looking to movie mogul, right? <laughs> you, uh, I'm looking at the monitor here, and I could see you. Yeah, you, you, you look yeah. like you just either. Oh, stepped, there it is. Yep, you, I see you just it. Okay. either stepped out of GQ. Or, or uh, the the weekly mafia uh, news rag. Well, let me. Uh, I'm going to grab my screen here for a minute, and I'm going to sh show you what this was about. Uh, first of all, I had the privilege of being in this movie called God and Salsa, um, with uh, Giovanna Vidal, um, Javier Luna, and Sarah Hernandez. Um, the short story uh, is that. About five years ago now, um, some of you may know that my, in my other life, uh, I'm the chairman of the Wagner Society of Southern California. It's a classical music society. And through a series of events, I got to meet uh, the son of a famous singer um, that when I was a, a young man at 14, 15 years old, I got, to, uh, I got to see. Anyway, long story short, we hit it off. He's a believer. And he and his wife were writing this movie, and they asked me if I would look over the pastor parts and see the theology. And if I haven't, as a matter of fact, they, they, uh, I made some comments, and said, they said to me, well, you know what, why don't you just write that part? So I wrote in that part. And then uh, uh, the year before COVID, they came back to me and said, um, hey, would you be interested in actually playing that part in the movie? So I said, sure. I mean, what, why would I say no, right? Um, so I said yes. And um, COVID was a, an interesting thing because we were supposed to shoot during COVID and finances dried up on the movie and all that sort of stuff. But yet, nonetheless, um, about halfway through COVID, they decided regardless what, we're going to go forward. So uh, just a couple of months ago, the movie came out. It's available on Amazon. <laughs> It's available on, um, you know, uh, Apple TV and um, iTunes and all the major things. It's a, the short version, too, of the story is it's about teen suicide. And um, it's, a, it's a pretty strong movie. I think it's a strong movie. Um, and uh, as far as the storyline goes, I think you would, you would enjoy it um, now. As far as the sneakers go, got to come back to another picture. 
my daughter, God bless her, um, got me those because <clears throat> they were designed by this guy. You may or may not know him. This is Paul Stanley from that's Paul Stanley from Kiss. So, uh, and I she arranged this where he and I got to meet. Uh, and uh, so he actually designed as a limited edition Puma that he designed. So that's that's how I got those. Sweet deal. Now you, if if there are individuals who don't know, and I'm sure, especially over live stream, there are people watching this that aren't acquainted <clears throat> with you and your tremendous ministry and teaching that you do. Uh, they wouldn't know that you're an avid KISS fan. I mean, the memorabilia <clears throat> and the concerts and, I, I mean, you, you are the Star Trek Trekkie of KISS fans. Right. And <laughs> what I tell people when they ask me about Richard Wagner and the classical music and that society, I just say it's the classical version of the KISS army. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well... Uh, we're going to get this thing turned over to you. I'm sitting in the sanctuary up at the front. Um, people are viewing the altar area there and uh, of this beautiful uh, Lutheran church that we co-locate in. And I just decided that uh, for ease, we wouldn't try to do all the fancy camera stuff for, you know, my shot. And I'd just use my laptop here and bring you in via Zoom and and give them just a good quality picture and audio because it's really the teaching. I've watched these two messages uh, after you recorded them and taught them locally there in California where you reside and, and teach and, and pastor with your, your precious wife, Karen, at Oasis of the Valley. And, oh, you, you remember I called you. I, I was midstream in number two. And I called you mm -hmm. and I said, uh, I hate you. Actually, I think I texted you first. Yes. I, I, I texted you and I, I just said, I hate you. <laughs> and <laughs> you texted me back. And you were on vacation somewhere, I think. You texted me back and said something to the effect of, well, what have I done to earn uh, your hatred? And <laughs> so <laughs> I called you and we talked. And I, I said, brother, I, I'm just finishing your two-message series. And I, I just, uh, I'm humbled, I'm uh, overwhelmed, I am discouraged and beaten up because I now realize that I am a fraction of the teacher that you are, and I don't think I'll ever be able to teach again. I said, this message is so important that either you're going to need to teach it, or you're going to have to send me your outlines so that I can attempt, a measly attempt. Uh, it was maybe a week or so later that I got a text from you. I guess it's been two weeks now. And um, I was not in a series and needing some rest from caring for my wife, Nina, who's been in, had a meniscus surgery. I myself am in uh, physical therapy for a compressed disc. And there's just been a real workload and so forth. And so I was headed into the weekend thinking about what I was going, and I get this text from you, you know, I'd be willing to uh, teach those two messages to your church. <laughs> I thought, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I, I, I mean, I put my black on, and I uh, just started praising God, and, 
and here we are. So we had to cancel last week's, unfortunately, due to some uh, audio video difficulty that we went through. But here we are. We're back in the saddle. You've got this week and next week uh, to bring these two messages. And I'm just so proud. I'm so proud. And I'm so anticipating the word of the Lord that God's going to bring to us. I'm getting <coughs> religious now. But uh, I'll turn it over to you, brother. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, as you know, Genesis is my home away from home, so to speak. And I want to, uh, first of all, say thank you to Jeff and Nina, as always, for not only allowing me to share, but being the friends that they are to Karen and I. Um, truly friends. And um, this, this message came about, actually, it's kind of over years. Um, as I've taught parts of this, at different stages at our church in Oasis and in other places. And um, I was then at a, uh, a church service, a midweek church service uh, at a couple of friends of ours church. And they had a, their a person they called their pastor speaking. Um, there's a couple of pastors and he's, he, he's like their pastor's pastor. And uh, he said a few things that just rekindled these messages to me. And I decided that um, I needed to put these together, especially in the time that we're in. Um, I'm going to share my screen now. Let's hope the transitions and all those things work. Um, so if there is a, a challenge, let me know right away. And uh, let me flip my other screen here. There we are. And Lord willing, everything is going to work just fine. This is what calling it seeing beyond your religion. This is part one. I have made a few changes since the last uh, time I've done this, and hopefully it'll come through as, as uh, um, dynamic uh, sitting in a chair speaking through Zoom as it would be uh, with people in person. Oh, seeing beyond your religion, this is part one, grasping divine reality beyond, beyond a biblical worldview. And... Um, I've written several books. You probably know that. One of uh, my more recent books is called Melchizedek. Um, um, Our Gracious King Priesthood in Christ. And that in the first volume, um, the second volume is about to come out, Tree of Life Realities. Uh, it looks like the end of January, possibly February. But in the first book, there's a comment that during a time of prayer, I felt the spirit impress on my heart, and that's this. Religion occupies the pl uh, religion occupies the space where revelation doesn't exist, and that idea is that we do get bits and pieces sometimes of revelation, as in our oneness in Christ. But then there are spaces we we don't have the fullness of that yet, so we start filling in the blanks with religious ideas. We look at the Bible, we try to ascertain um, some of uh, what this revelation means. And before you know it, we have this kind of uh, Picasso <laughs> type of cubic period idea of what the kingdom is, and that's what we present to people. And sometimes, as Pastor Jeff said, this can be quite challenging because um, what we present to people is not always a very clear picture of Christ. And in some cases, it's a very shrouded people of Christ. So seeing beyond your religion, grasping divine reality, 
beyond a biblical worldview. And I'm using that because that phrase beyond a biblical worldview is that's become a hot statement lately. We need to have Christians need to have a biblical worldview. Well, let me suggest another thing to you, something that's kind of a mantra that we say at Oasis, and that's this. We are a Christ-centered people using the Bible as a tool, not a Bible-centered people hoping and assuming Christ will be in a, re a result. The idea that we can have a biblical worldview is suggesting, once again, we can create an absolute Picasso, which could be very confusing to people, even though sometimes it may be, to some, beautiful art, some of it, is, is it can be very difficult to understand. With that in mind, for many of us um, in the evangelical world in North America and beyond, our view of the Bible has become what we call the final word of God. I would like to suggest to you that there is only one word of God, the living word, who is Christ, who we see revealed in Jesus. And if we refocus our inner life, we can see him within us. So therefore, we are Christ-centered people. And yes, we're using the Bible as a tool, but if we become a Bible-centered people, anything can happen. In the same way, you know, Solomon said, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot continue. How much less this temple which I have built in 1 Kings 8, 27. Now think of this for a minute. I'm not putting up these scriptures right now, but I just wanted to say that. Most Christians know God doesn't dwell in buildings. You know, if, if he dwells in a building, it's because we showed up, so to speak. And we're pretty good with that. But I want to suggest something else that the Apostle John said. Quote, this is out of John 21, 25. And there are also many other things Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. Amen, he says. That's the final verse of the Gospel of John. So I'm going to tell you something. Jesus doesn't live in buildings, and you can't contain him in a book. He's broader and more magnificent than just that. In other words... We're quick to say we're the church, but then all of a sudden we contain God to a book. And because of that, religion winds up prevailing rather than the living Christ being revealed to people. So today I want to share with you three examples from the New Testament that openly shows us the very opposite of religious temples and books. These examples unveil the reality of Christ and how sometimes the line between the two opposites can appear very thin, but actually be a big gulf between the two, like the Grand Canyon. So let's first look at the events revolving around a man who was born blind and the discussion between Jesus and his disciples. First, Jesus, it says, I'm going to read this to you, Jesus is speaking, he's going to say something to me that's very profound. As he passed by, this is John 9, 1 through 7, if you're listening, maybe in a car or something right now. Um, 
John 9, 1 through 7. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, listen to these words. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now think of that for a moment. The key phrase I want to point out is this. He saw a man. He saw a man. The Greek phrase there is idon anthropon, which means he saw a human being. He saw a person. The living word, the eternal Christ, saw a person. And the thing about this word anthropos, which is the kindred word to adam in Hebrew, is, or ha'adam in Hebrew, is this. It is the representation of the image and likeness of God. Jesus didn't see blindness that a man had. He saw a man, the image and likeness of himself, God, simply in a situation. Now, the second part was this. And now this is Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? On the other hand, these scripturally dedicated religious people didn't see a human being, though if you asked them, they would have said, oh, sure, he's a human being. But they saw a theological and doctrinal situation. Think of it. At this point, this person is sitting in the acceptable beggar's posture to receive alms from whosoever would, that which was a culturally, you know, culturally religious um, uh, acceptable thing to do of that day. And he's listening to these disciples right in front of him ask Jesus this question. Who did sin? Right away, the sense of religious and self-righteous superiority starts to appear, I think, here. Keep in mind, we're taking care of such people in that day. That is... Uh, they gave donations, etc. It was part of their culture to do that, part of their religious culture to do it. The beggar who is in this situation because of some sin or the so-called merciful religious people got to feel good about themselves because they gave. I'm going to suggest to you this question was about their ego more than it was about a blind man. And it was about their religious point of view rather than what the revelation of Christ was bring, would bring. Let me add this to it too. Remember how Jesus saw Idon Anthropon, he saw a man, a human, he saw the likeness of God. What's interesting is the disciples don't say that, who sinned, this man or his parents. The disciples use the word tis harmaton hutos, which means who sinned, that guy or his parents. It wasn't a human being, it was that guy. It was that 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 man person thing over there, that thing. Not I, I don't even like to use the word man person because that is really a lens it to anthropos. He's saying who sinned? That guy or his parents? 
If you want to be even more emphatic, the word hutos means who sinned, that one or his parents? They didn't see a human being. They didn't see a person and most definitely didn't see the image and likeness of God. They saw their theology. They saw their doctrine. And because of it, they saw sin and a sinner. Surely they couldn't see the image and likeness of God after all, because sin brought this about. He couldn't be a resemblance of the image of God because he had sin in his life or his parents were sinners. That sound familiar? In the message I heard a few weeks ago, a fellow by the name of Pastor Stan Mitchell said something that I think is quite important. He said, there's no right answer to a wrong question. Now, I know we say things like um, when we're in a, in a group, you know, we'll say, hey, there's no wrong questions here. Just ask a question. But the thing is, I'm going to suggest to you, it's not the question itself. It's the intention behind the question that can define where it comes from. Like, for example, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, you know, um, do we pay taxes or not? And Jesus has to say, well, whose who's face is on this coin? Then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Well, in the same way, it's, what was the intention behind that? It wasn't just an honest question. It was an intention of religiosity that was behind this. And when, when the thing is, is, I don't know about you, but when somebody has a question and they've already assumed themselves right and they come from that standpoint, it's very difficult to redirect them into another direction. It's hard to correct right, if that makes sense. How many times we... We, we consider situations and really we're seeing through the lens of a theological belief system. We're not seeing with the eyes of Christ. So what does Jesus say? Now consider the question, who sinned? We can actually point to chapter and verse in the Old Testament as to why they're asking that. Yet in the true economy of God, the question has no relevance. Whether he was conceived in some adulterous situation right? Who's, who sinned? Was it his parents? Or now we get into a whole nother world of, of thinking. Or did he sin now that he was born blind? So now we're talking about reincarnation, that in a previous life, he did something that in this life, he would be born blind. The key is Jesus says none of the above. It's irrelevant. Whether it was the sin of a parent or from a previous life, it has no bearing in the mind of God. How many times we hear people say things like, well, we live in a sinful world, so things happen. It becomes a convenient theological statement because if we have something happen, we get to say it's the sinful world's fault in which we live, or how about this one? It's the devil attacking you. You know, I find it interesting. I was talking to Will Wheat. Uh, some of you know who Will Wheat may be. Um, uh, just yesterday, and we were talking about this idea of the devil for a minute, and it's interesting how many of us preachers have said things, well, you got to be careful, you don't want to open, you, you want to be careful about sin, you don't want to open up the door to the devil. What's interesting, after you're, you're in the, quote, in the Lord for a while, now it's not so much opening the door to the devil, when the calamity happens, 
rather than just ask, well, you know, um, maybe I sinned, maybe I did something and I let the devil in. We then moved to something more powerful. It couldn't be that I did something. It's the devil attacking me because I'm so important in the kingdom of God. Can you hear the arrogance there? How, how many of us don't even realize that it's not even these ideas. Matter of fact, um, Patty Ferry, Jeff Anina knows Patty Ferry. She was sharing um, a few weeks ago and she said something that was interesting. She said, if you believe in a devil that way and Jesus won the victory and he's taken the keys of death and hell and all that and he's stripped the devil of his authority, okay, fine. Then why do we keep taking Jesus' keys and giving him back to the devil? and giving him that kind of right in our life, in our thinking that he's that powerful to either attack us or if we open up the door, he's gonna come in. Jesus resets the playing field with the blind person who is the image and likeness of God. He says, neither, no, neither. In other words, sin and who did it is not an issue, period. To say that someone is a sinner and their behavior or some outside forces or some someone else's behavior like one's parents is the cause and is to say that the judgment of God has come in or by extension God allowed Satan to do it is actually saying that blindness is the work of God. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Think it through for a minute. How many times have we said things like, well, God permitted it? Well, if he permitted it, He's still allowing it. Well, no, it's because I did it. God couldn't stop it. We get into these kinds of theological, what I would call uh, like hamster wheels, where we start going around in circles on these things. But actually, Jesus is clear here. Neither let it go. And when he says we must work the works of God, he's making it very clear. The blindness that this man is experiencing, who's the image and likeness of, of myself or God, my father, he is telling them the healing of this blind man is the work of God, not the blindness itself. In Matthew 5, 43 through 45, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you. Do you know how many times Jesus says things like, but I say to you? I want you to think this through for a minute. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Think of this. The, uh, the phrase... You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. These are coming out of scriptures in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Do you realize what Jesus just did? He usurped Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We're going to have to realize that our religiosity and even how we look at the Bible, Jesus changes the whole playing field. But I say to you, he's saying, there's another message here. In the book of Acts, in the 8th chapter, in the 26th through 37th verse, we now have another situation. 
So we have Jesus looking at this blind man. He didn't see blindness. He saw his image and likeness. He didn't see through a theology that said, well, surely the only reason why he's blind is because, you know, he, I mean, look what Deuteronomy 28 said. If you don't obey the, the words of my law, these curses will come on you. If you do obey, then these blessings will come upon you. And Jesus is saying, I'm saying to do something else. So he's changing their mindset. So first of all, the sin situation now becomes irrelevant. Now this next verse is even ratchets it up a bit further. In Acts 8, 26 through 37, it says the following. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he arose and went, behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran and heard him reading. I heard him reading Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now notice, it's the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. And then it says in verse 20, 29, the spirit said to Philip, keep in mind what's happening here. God is speaking to Philip and the context of this becomes very profound. So I want you to, we're going to finish this segment up and I want you to see some other verses. The place in the scripture which he read was, he was led as sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So the eunuch said, I, will, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And watch. Then Philip preached Jesus to him. Now, when they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me? Very powerful statement here. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, I'm, before we go any further, I want you to understand this was not what many of us was introduced, introduced to Christ. Um, we said the thing called the Dwight L. Moody, you know, sinner's prayer. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. I received you into my heart as if he was never there. You know, I received you into my heart, et cetera, et cetera. We may read that in this context, but when he says, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, there is a context that sits behind this. The fact that Jesus is transforming what we knew what was written into now something living that augments and even usurps some Old Testament ideas. I like to say this about the Old Testament sometimes. The Old Testament is a fragmented view of the eternal God with veils, doors, and other things that get in the way. Um, uh, when I was, again, in the conversation I had with Will yesterday, it was kind of like we pay, play peekaboo with Jesus. It's like God is on the other side of the veil in the temple, and we tell people a little bit about his love and grace, open veil, 
right? And then we close it. Yeah, but you can't got to stay out of sin. Yeah, you can't let the devil in. Yeah, you got to do this. You can't do that. You have to do this. And then, but Jesus loves you. We open up the veil again, and then we close it again. Peekaboo, Jesus. That's a, a, a religious, if you will, Old Testament legalistic approach. Now, watch what happens here. Why was the eunuch asking, asking this question? I want you to see this verse. I'm going to show you two, but I want you to see this verse. Leviticus 21, 16 through 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind, that was the other guy, or lame, or eczema, or a scab, or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect, shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. And if that wasn't good enough to point out, okay, now, first of all, if you have a defect, you can't serve God. Boom. One of the things was, is if you're a eunuch, you can't serve God. If you're blind, you can't serve God. Okay? But it didn't stop there. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. He that is a eunuch, whether he has been crushed or cut, shall not come into the congregation of Jehovah. One more time. He that is a eunuch, whether he has been crushed or cut, shall not come into the congregation of Jehovah. Now you can understand why the eunuch is answering, asking this question. Because he's not allowed in the presence of God, and he can't serve God. Though he's thirsting and looking at the scripture in Isaiah, and there's a reason behind that. I'm going to show you why that is in a minute in Isaiah. But the idea is when he says, see, let me go back. Um, verse 35, then Philip preached Jesus to him. Jesus has a different message because he doesn't see blind. He doesn't see eunuchs. He doesn't see LBGTQIA the way religious people do. Everyone is the image and likeness of God, irrespective of those things. We put those things up there. We see them through theological doctrines, etc., rather than seeing the image and likeness of God. Then Philip preached Jesus to him. See, God and these other things, as far as us walking with God are all irrelevant because the Christ is, is within us. And all God wants to do is remove our egos so we can unveil the reality of the living Christ within. I'm, getting, I'm to the point where I'm, I don't even tell people you need to receive Jesus as if he's not in there. Rather, what I tell them is it's time to unlock the reality of Christ within you. See, here is water, the eunuch says. What hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me from entering in? 
And then he said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Why is he saying that? Because religious folks really don't believe with their heart. They're certain with their mind about sin. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now he's stating the message that the living Christ brings is the one that usurps it all and fulfills all the promises that are shaded in the Old Testament, if you will, and brings it to light in the new. Let me show you now why he was asking this question, because he was studying Isaiah because of this set of scriptures in Isaiah. Let no foreigner who is bound, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, now he's just bound himself to the Lord, right? He's just, he has just embraced the revelation of the Christ. The Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let not any eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. You get the pun there. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, listen, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a better name than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and here's the other pun, that will not be cut off. How dare we? I, I did it years ago. But how dare we, we put roadblocks in front of people that desire Jesus? And because we get wrapped up in things like, well, is gay marriage right or wrong? Is, is this right? Stop. Step away from the Bible before you hurt yourself and somebody else. Jesus brings a whole new revelation to this. But again, that's our second example now. The first one, Jesus saw a person. He saw the image and likeness of God. Blindness was just a situation that needed the works of God to touch it. In this case, regardless of what Leviticus and Deuteronomy said legalistically, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit to Philip, totally usurps that, fulfilling a promise. And, and it's almost scary if you think about it, but Isaiah is addressing those who are um, really bound up in the legalistic approach to Torah. To think of the phrase, and a better, and a name better than sons and daughters. I think we need to rethink how we treat the LBGDQIA. I think we need to rethink about race. I think we need to rethink these things because we may fall back into a legalistic approach of Torah just using New Testament verses, and we don't realize they may even have a better name than us because of their pursuit in pure heart for God. Think that through for a minute. I don't want to sound legalistic when I say that, but we think so much of ourselves that maybe at times that ego veils the reality of Christ in us I mean, after all, didn't it say that Jesus humbled himself in the form of a servant? Remember, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself in the form of a servant. 
Jesus didn't leave his divinity. He revealed his divinity through humility and service. Okay, I'm going to sidetrack here. Let me, let me continue. Here's our third example. Acts 10, 1 through 28. And I have the little dots there in between or because I, I've left out little sections that, that over explain the story. And for the sake of time, I just wanted to flow through. So you can read this yourself and get the fuller picture. A man named Cornelius, a centurion. So we're talking about a Roman soldier here. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. Okay, good. And about three in the afternoon, you're going to notice the number three is a significant thing in this chapter. And about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man called Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with the tanner, whose house is by the sea. Cornelius said, excuse me, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier. There's three again. And he sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approached the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Verse 10. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men, three of them, sent by Cornelius, found out where Simon's house was, and they called out. Now watch this. Verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Holy Spirit's talking, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So God goes, you know, think of that. Peter's up on a roof because he's hungry, and, but his religion is still there. You know, he doesn't eat anything unclean. He doesn't do, quote, unclean things by law or by the scripture. He, does, he, he, he holds to it. So while God is trying to get Peter to go beyond, God goes to an, what we would commonly call a Gentile. He's the one that has the vision to send three men to Peter to get Peter to get off a roof and to come to his house to share the gospel that he understands. God, it's amazing how God used the, if you will use these terms for a minute, the unbeliever, the Gentile, the sinner. He uses him to provoke us to get out of our religion. I'm convinced this whole issue about gay marriage, racism in our 
uh, white evangelical racism. We've heard about these things. All this stuff is God trying to provoke us to get out of our religiosity and embrace the living God in people that are different than us. Okay, I quit preaching. Let me get back to the verse. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them. Cornelius was was expecting them, and as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, but Peter made him get up, right? Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Let me go back and reread that because something was happening beyond over here and I kind of lost my, my trend from it. Let me go back to verse 25. Computer, cancel. Sorry, my computer's talking to me. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Thank you, Peter. You found some humility. Taking with him, Peter, talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Keep in mind, he is saying this before anybody says some kind of sinner's prayer before anybody, quote, decides to, to join the church or go through new members class, he is saying, God has already made you clean. We need to rethink how we see the world, even with some of the most unlovely people and some of the things that people do. In the, through the mighty work of Christ, they are not impure, nor are they unclean, but they have been made clean. And it's interesting when you read the rest of this, he says how God showed me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Yeah, after he knocked you on the head three times with a vision, had to repeat it over and over several times and send three guys from the outside to get you to understand. How many of these things that we've all gone through in the last couple of years have really been maybe God like uh, uh, sending a sheet with all these things that Peter's not supposed to eat, God is pressing us to eat something now that is of him, that is a revelation of who he is, that our own religiosity has gotten in the way and veiled Christ in us. It's going to change how we view the Bible because the living Christ comes from a completely different point of view. We had three examples. On the far left is an old woodcut of Peter seeing the vision descending down to him. And I found it interesting that you see a book down on the ground next to him, how he's kind of put the scripture where it should be and is looking maybe up in a different mind. He's having this trance, but maybe it's time to let go of some of this legalistic You know, I'm more convinced than ever that legalism is rooted in fear. The the idea of telling people God's going to judge you is rooted in fear. 
uh, we did a podcast yesterday. And what's interesting is last I checked in the book of Hebrews, it says that what gave, gave the devil power is the fear of death. It's interesting that what we do with people many times is we preach the fear first. Oh, you're going to go to hell. We preach the fear first. So it's like all of a sudden I got to join the devil's team, preach fear of death, so I can then tell them that Jesus wants to save them. I'm going to suggest to you we never have to do that. All we need to do is, first of all, have a revelation of the infinite love of God and share that with people and unlock the reality of Christ within them. Just like the in the picture in the center, we have the eunuch and Philip talking. Show me what this means. And rather than Philip saying, okay, uh, let me explain to you what this word means in Hebrew, et cetera, and you know me, I love doing that stuff. He says, let me talk to you about Jesus. Let me talk to you about it. But here's the thing, you gotta be brave enough to believe that you can let the legalism go. You got to be brave enough to believe that sin is no longer an issue. You got to be brave enough to believe that all the legalisms, all the things we've done, it's time to let them go. Because in the end, the guy on the right, the blind man, in that story, who was really blind? I'm going to suggest it was the disciples because they were blinded by their perception of doctrine, theology, and sin, their beliefs, as opposed to seeing what Christ saw, the powerful and wonderful revelation of life. With that, I'll close for today, and we'll pick this up next week with some other things we add to that. Um, I don't know how many people are present or online. Can't see that. But if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Um, hey there, Jeff. Good to see you. Now be obvious to everyone why I took John up on his offer. It should now be obvious to everyone why I took John up on his offer. John, let me get my view uh, adjusted here. We have just a few minutes. Um, I'm going to forego communion today in favor of any remaining questions. Next week, having done the introduction uh, and, and, you know, giving you some idea of who John is and so forth and spending a few minutes just in laughter, which I think is good. We'll not be doing that next week. We'll jump right into the message and then again... We'll have any Q&A, and uh, we'll celebrate communion then. How about that? So we'll forego communion today. <clears throat> I wonder if we do have any questions.
And I'm not monitoring as I normally am since I'm in the Zoom. I, I'm not monitoring the chat. Is anybody, uh, Carol, if you are able to see the chat, see if we have any questions. Uh, Nina, if anybody is sending questions. So if you have a question you would like John to answer on air here, all right, in the live stream, text it, 720-878-3323, all right, we're monitoring that. Nina will get that to us, and then, or you could type it into the chat window of your device there. And again, I'm not monitoring the chat, so if one of our team can get the chat up, do we have any questions there? Nothing to report. Does anybody have any questions here in the sanctuary that you'd be interested in having John answer? Or at least attempt to. <laughs> well, and I, I always consider it that you've just, you've been so thought-provoking and thorough. I mean, how do, how do you respond, you know, to something that just strikes the heart uh, challenges me to think differently. Uh, oh, man. I am challenged to think differently here. And thank you, John, for spearheading. Thank you. Um, some Many people know, many others wouldn't know, that I'm in a relationship with, with you and a group of men and women. We used to call <laughs> it an apostolic team. Uh, you know, we needed those titles back then. And it's just a, it's a gathering of leadership, leader men, leader women, who come together and share their hearts, let their hair down, talk about very real things, and we share our lives together. And there's another word that enters in at a time like this when we're talking about such such. Uh, gatherings or leadership teams uh, is accountability. Uh, somebody once said, it's not about being accountable to, it's about being accountable for. Uh, you have always demonstrated that you feel accountable for our lives, those of us that have gathered and are part of this gathering and team and fellowship that you spearhead. I just want to say I'm, I'm so thankful. I've grown so much in mm -hmm. being in relationship with you and Will and Michael yeah. and Ralph and all of the various individuals. Some of them have been on a panel that we've brought here into Genesis, and we'll do it again in the, in the new year. Again, does anybody have a question that was spurred? brought to your heart during this? He said some pretty poignant things. Well, I, I did listen briefly uh, to, while the, uh, um, while the live stream was going on, I monitored it real quick to see what was going out over the air, and it's just really good. It's nice and clear. Please get this out. We boosted this Facebook post because of the import of this message. If, if, if something here has rung your bell or spoken to you, would you share this message? Tell people about it, all right? The, the link to view it is, again, 
going to stay up on the internet and on Facebook there. We, we do not post to Facebook. We don't go Facebook Live. But we do post the link for the live stream. And then you can circle around and watch it at any time. We do have a question. Uh, Matt? people um, so the question um, I have is that when you start to embrace this type of message um, the people that are harder to deal with are, are no longer the people outside of the religion but the traditional evangelical it, um, uh, and on this end right now it's I'm getting a lot of echo so I'm having difficulty hearing oh, what okay. you were saying so let me drop this and I'm okay and I'll have you ask it again just a second here. I'm going to change my Okay, John, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, now I hear you again. Uh, let me be sure I don't hear you now out loud. Yeah, so um, when you start to believe this way, I think that it's a wonderful viewpoint. Um, but then I think what happens is uh, your adversaries start to become people within traditional evangelicalism. Uh, how do you address people who are still very um, set in believing that we should shun people who are LGBTQIA, I believe is what you said, um, how, how do you deal with people who are religious and will not accept other people that are in their lives because of such things? Um, definitely a good question. Um, there's a couple of things. First of all is, I know from, for myself as I have, and I was thinking about this actually before the question was asked to mention this. Um, first of all, people are where they are. I mean, there was a time that when I first came to Christ, I mean, I was trying to witness to everybody on the street uh, I could to save them from hell. And sometimes was pretty brash to their face. The key, key is, is that's what I knew at the time. And realizing that this is where people are at, their time, at the time. So it's first of all, really developing a peace on the inside of your heart where you can kind of live out turning the other cheek. Um, rather than retaliate or try to arm wrestle them into believing the way you believe. I am an avid believer of this statement. When the student is ready, the teacher will come. Unfortunately, what we've done in evangelicalism is ready and not here I come. You know, so <clears throat> and she, say again. You know, and, and that, yeah, so I'm also aware of the fact that where folks are um, is, is where they are. In some cases, it may be a necessary struggle. Um, however, on the other hand, I think it's the wisdom to know when the student is ready to make the provoking statements. I, I am convinced 
right now that we are in a season that there are those that are being provoked to think differently. The issue is, is it's, it's, they're wrestling with it. And it's times like these, messages like these, the messages that Jeff did on hell, for example, these different things that all of a sudden it pricks the heart to start thinking on those terms. But honestly, when, when folks are even antagonistic to this point of view, believe me, I've lost as many friends as I've made over this, uh, these ideas. And in some cases, lost more but, and gained few. Uh, fewer. However, the relationships of the fewer have a depth and a, and a dynamic and a width that I never had before. Um, so I'm, I'm, I just, I don't retaliate. I don't, I try not to fight back. I, I had at, at times I've responded back and honestly, again, which as I said during the message, when a person is right in their own mind about how they think or feel it's it's hard to say anything to that i'll give you another quick example there's a, a a story about a monk and a young man who uh felt that he wanted to be discipled by this monk so the monk said to him he said well why don't you come we'll have some tea tomorrow and we'll see what this means so the so the young man went and the young man's talking about the revelations he had and how powerful this is, and this is what God showed him, this is what he sees, da 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 da. And so the monk then took a the uh, the teapot and began to pour more tea in the young man's saucer, I mean in his cup, and it began to spill over into the saucer and then spilled onto the table. And finally, the young man said, "Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, it's spilling all over." And he said, "Well." That's kind of like you. You believe you're so full, I can't fill you with anything. So <laughs> that thought to me is powerful. And, but we have to be aware. I think we just have to be aware. I don't know, Matt, I'm kind of rambling a little bit maybe, but it's, I don't really feel like it's my job to change someone's thinking until they're ready to have their thoughts addressed. And I think we need to know the when that is and since that really good john would you pray us out and just close our service here sure father thank you thank you so much for what jesus brought to us he didn't just reveal the loving infinite father but he also revealed who we are. As the saying goes, Jesus is not an example for us, but an example of us. God, I thank you so much for this time together. Lord, I pray for the people that heard this message today and as they maybe revisit it throughout the week or think about it, that their hearts would not only be filled with the joy of what it is to be loved by God, but also the joy of loving others who are his image, irrespective of their situation, circumstances, or what our theology used to say. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that as they go out the doors today, or we sign off on Zoom, or those who are watching the live stream, 
that we recognize we're going into a mission field, but not necessarily to save people from hell or the anger of God, but maybe just to unlock the living Christ within in them, and in a sense, maybe save folks from themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.